Welcome everyone to Fair Territory, where it is no longer early. Teams are starting to figure out, ah, maybe we're not as good as we thought in spring training. Maybe some teams are thinking, hey, we're a little bit better than we thought in spring training. But you're starting to see a little bit of drama. It happens every year once we get to May. Now, we're going to start off today by talking about the best series of the weekend, and then we'll get into some of these teams, and we'll talk about them as the show goes on. But the best series of the weekend, yes, Padres-Dodgers, culminating last night with that dramatic win by the Dodgers, the Mookie home run with two outs in the ninth, the kids coming through in the 10th, Bush with the RBI single, and then Outman, the two-run homer. This series started off, if you remember, with the Padres winning the first game and then showing that Clayton Kershaw meme, the Kershaw crying meme, and Kershaw saying, quite appropriately, he had the exact right response. If you don't like that kind of stuff, play better. Well, the Dodgers played better. They've been playing better. They've won seven of eight. They're not exactly in commanding lead in the division, but they've got a one and a half game lead over the Diamondbacks, a three game lead over the Padres. And in a year in which they've cut payroll, they've turned it over to some younger players, they seem to be finding their footing here. And it coincided with the return of Will Smith as their catcher and he was a DH for a little bit, too, in this run. But he is so important to what they do. So this was a great series. Actually, the Dodgers outscored the Padres just by 9-8. Every game was decided by three runs or fewer. And you see the quality of these two clubs. Now, the Pods are not playing still as well as they should. And here is the telling stat. It's not ERA. The Padres have a slightly better ERA. But the offensive stat that I look at, the one that matters the most, Runs per game. The Dodgers in runs per game, fifth in the majors. The Padres, 23rd. They are 23rd with Fernando Tatis now back, Manny Machado, Juan Soto, the rest of the gang, and they still have not clicked offensively. Now, if you're a Padres fan, you're thinking, no problem, it's going to come. But I'd be a little bit concerned that it hasn't come yet. I'd be a little concerned that Soto really has not hit the way he used to hit with the Nationals in a Padres uniform. And here we go again. Are the Padres going to be as good as we thought? Or are they not as good as the collection of the sum of their parts? We're going to find out as the season goes on. These two teams play again next weekend. I'm headed out to L.A. on Thursday. We've got that series coming up on Fox Saturday night. Now to two other teams that are not playing to their capabilities, that are extreme disappointments. And for these two teams, no, it is not too early to start worrying. I am talking first about the St. Louis Cardinals and second about the New York Mets. But I'll start with the Cardinals. Now, the Cardinals came into the season with their usual high expectation. They play in one of the game's weakest divisions. The Cubs are starting to come. The Brewers are always trying to scramble and patch it together with a lower payroll. The Reds forever rebuilding or whatever it is they're doing. And the Pirates were not expected to even get off to the strong start that they did. So the Cardinals were in commanding position, it would seem, at the start of the year. Their record is 11-24. It is the worst record in the National League, and you started to see some cracks this weekend. One big crack. The Wilson Contreras move, first he was going to be an outfielder in DH, now he's just going to be a DH. But he's no longer, at least for the time being, going to be a catcher. 
Now, I wrote about this today, this situation in The Athletic. And I've written about it actually a few times now. Going back to spring training, that was another one. And then also after the Sean Murphy trade. The Cardinals had a choice in the offseason. They could have gone all out for Sean Murphy in a trade with the Athletics. Or they could have signed a free agent. Wilson Contreras was the best free agent. Christian Vasquez, the next best. Murphy would have cost a lot in prospects. As I reported, it was some combination of Newt Barr, Donovan, and a pitching prospect that the A's wanted, and the Cardinals were not willing to go there. They didn't want to part with that talent. They didn't also part with that talent for a guy like Pablo Lopez, who they also could have used. So they made their choice, and they went from the all-time best defensive catcher, or one of them, in Yadier Molina, to a player who, while extremely gifted offensively and a good player, has defensive questions surrounding him. The Cubs did not want Wilson Contreras back. That speaks volumes. And as I wrote today, the Cardinals, when they interviewed Contreras for almost three and a half hours, they fell in love. And you can fall in love in a job interview, that's fine, but you got to do the rest of the due diligence. And it seemed to me that the Cardinals just kind of ignored the warning signs and proceeded full steam ahead. Now, they're saying what they want to do is just step back, have Wilson Contreras learn some more about their pitching staff and the way they want things done. Okay, Braves don't have this problem with Sean Murphy. Braves have the best record in the National League. Braves have a better pitching staff, yes, but they also have a player who, while switching leagues, adapted rather well. Wilson Contreras, staying in the same division, to this point, has not. Wilson Contreras, in my opinion, wants to be a good catcher. He tries to be a good catcher, and he's saying all the right things. But for now, he is not their catcher. And where this goes over the next five years, at a price of $87.5 million, is at this point anyone's guess. But of course, to blame Contreras solely for the Cardinals' problems would be folly. Let's take a look at where they stand in the world of baseball right now. I mentioned the 11-24 and 24 record. That's part of it. They're last in the NL Central. The rotation ERA. This is the big one. 5.33, 23rd in the majors. We could all see this coming. Their rotation has quality pitchers, but not dominant pitchers. And then the bottom stat, that is the big one. That is the one that has crushed them all season long. 21 home runs allowed with two strikes. That is tied for second in the majors. The Cardinals have a lot of problems. And so does one of the teams in the NL East that we thought was going to be a dominant team, at least on paper, because they had spent, oh, I don't know, $6 billion? No, actually, only $370 million. That would be the New York Mets. And they play in a division with a dominant team, the Atlanta Braves. And they, the Mets, have all kinds of problems right now. They are 17 and 18, one game under 500. They just are coming off a week in which they played the Tigers and Rockies, two lesser clubs, and went one and six. Now the Mets problems, somewhat like the Cardinals, were kind of easy to forecast. Some of this stuff we saw coming. What did we see coming? Number one, the age and the injury risk in the starting rotation, and that has played out. Scherzer with the physical issues, not to mention the suspension. Verlander just coming back. Carlos Carrasco soon to come back, but has been hurt. Was not very good before he got hurt. Jose Quintana, we still haven't seen. 
and are not going to see for quite some time. That was always going to be a question with the Mets. They're banking on two older pitchers to be their aces. That's one issue. The other issue, and this was also something people talked about, a lack of power in that lineup beyond Pete Alonso. Now, Alonso, of course, is one of the great power hitters in the game. 11 home runs right now, right up there with the league leaders. Next on the New York Mets is Francisco Lindor with five. And Lindor, again, has not been the Lindor we were accustomed to seeing in Cleveland, at least on the offensive end. So where do the Mets go from here? We've already seen them bring up Brett Beatty, who does have power and who could really help them at third base. And Francisco Alvarez, a catcher who has not hit yet, but is one of the top prospects in the game and expected to be an offensive force at some point. They've got two other top prospects in the minors still. Ronnie Mauricio is one of them. The other is Mark Vientos. How those guys would fit is not as clear. Whether they'll come up and make an impact, that's certainly not known. But they do have those options. Pitching, they're going to have to ride with what they have. And what they have is problematic. They're 24th in the league in rotation ERA right now. 22nd in slugging. This is who the Mets are. This is kind of who we thought they might be. Not this bad, obviously. So I'm not exactly shocked by what is happening to them. I do expect them to play better. But at the same time, as I said, these problems were not exactly coming out of nowhere. These were fears that the Mets had, or at least should have had, going into the season. All right, so as I said, we're in early May now. It's no longer early. It's time to start talking about teams more seriously, start looking at trends more seriously. We're going to do that all show long. All right, we've talked about two teams, the Mets and Cardinals, who have been early disappointments. Here's a team that I thought was going to crash and has been anything but an early disappointment as the season has played out. Now, we're going to do a little true confessions here, and I'm going to confess that at 5-8, and eight, I was pretty critical of the Red Sox in the Athletics free newsletter. Their rotation was a mess at the time. Their depth was a question. And I wrote these words. It's fairly obvious where this is heading. Trouble for Heim Bloom, president of baseball operations, and maybe even for Alex Cora. Well, since that 5-8 start, the Red Sox have gone 16-7. They're 21-15, playing in the toughest division in the game, the AL East. They've had, unlike the Rays and Orioles, a difficult schedule. And they've endured it rather well. And they deserve a lot of credit for that. And this is something that I didn't see coming. I don't know that a lot of people saw coming. But here they are, and they're doing some really interesting things. Had an eight-game winning streak that ended Sunday. We've seen Masataka Yoshida, their $90 million free agent, emerge as a force. One of the better hitters in the game. And again, that eight-game winning streak was against the Guardians, the Blue Jays, and the Phillies. Three good teams. The Blue Jays are a team that tortured the Red Sox all last season. So they're getting it done without Trevor Story, who's been out all year recovering from elbow surgery, without Adam Duval, who was their best hitter early and then fractured his wrist on April 9th. So that's impressive. And it's also impressive that the Red Sox offense, which is one of the best in the game, conceivably could get even better once Story returns and if they ever get Adalberto Mondesi healthy. They traded for him in the offseason. He's never healthy, but he's extremely talented, and he's an infielder. 
again, if they get him healthy, along with Story, again, assuming no other injuries, of course, they're in a really interesting spot. Jaron Duran has come a long way. Tristan Cassis hasn't really performed to expectations yet, but he's still drawing his walks. He's got plate discipline. He's not wavering in his approach. What we're seeing is a team built much like the 2013 World Series Championship Club. If you remember, Ben Sherrington was the GM back then. They signed a bunch of mid-level free agents. No real big names. But guys like Victorino and Johnny Gomes and Mike Napoli. And they got great performances out of them. David Ross was another one. And they won the World Series. This team is constructed in kind of a similar manner. Justin Turner, Kenley Jansen, Chris Martin. These are some of the free agents they signed. Corey Kluber, with Yoshida being the foremost one among them. This was an offseason in which they lost Xander Bogarts. Didn't really compete for Xander Bogarts. So a lot of people, including myself, thought, eh, the Red Sox, no identity. They're not going to be very good. Now, I'm not saying they're 2013 Red Sox yet. And in fact, that Red Sox team had a much stronger core. There was Ortiz, there was Pedroia, there was Ellsbury, there was Lester. They had some homegrown guys like Will Middlebrooks, Clay Buckholtz, Bogarts at the end of the year. This team, the core is kind of Devers, maybe Verdugo now, but it's not the same. And I still question their pitching. Though Chris Sale in his last two starts has been almost back to old Chris Sale. Paxton comes back this week. A lot of questions still with the pitching staff. Okay. But they've played extremely well. They are going to be a team that looks like they're going to compete. And yes, they're getting what the executives call 90th percentile outcomes out of a lot of these players right now. Guys playing at really high levels, maybe above where they should be playing. But that's what it takes. That's what kind of happened in 2013. And I'm not saying it's going to happen again. Not when the Rays are 28-7. and We'll get to them later in the show. Not when the Blue Jays are so good. Not when the Orioles are emerging. Played a great series against the Braves this weekend. But the Red Sox are better than I thought. So good for the Red Sox. And I'm already eating words, even though what? It's, I don't know, May 8th, 9th, whatever the date might be. Never too early to say, eh, I might have missed on that one. I might have missed on that one. Now, some other news over the weekend. This is something I wanted to touch on. The retirement of Matt Harvey. Now, in some senses, this is something of a baseball tragedy. A guy that had all the talent in the world, was a top 10 draft pick, burst onto the scene as the dark night of Gotham with the Mets, and looked like he was heading to a brilliant career. There were injuries, there were off-field issues, there was poor performance. We don't have to go into all that. The memory I will have of Matt Harvey always was from Game 5 of the 2015 World Series. I was working that game right next to the dugout for Fox, the Mets dugout, that is. And I remember the feeling in the ballpark as Harvey threw eight shutout innings. And of course, I remember him coming out for the ninth and the crowd and what the crowd was like at that moment. Harvey, in that instant, was the king of New York. He was about to win this World Series game, get the Mets back in the series. He had pitched brilliantly. A lot of the negative stuff had not yet occurred. He goes out there, and there were questions later, should he have gone out there with 100 pitches, 
facing some of the Royals' better hitters. And of course, he walked Kane. Kane steals second. He gives up the double to Hosmer, and that's it. Terry Collins had to go get him. Familia blows the save. Mets lose the game, lose the World Series. And the next day, of course, they're second-guessing, as there always is after a World Series game with a controversial decision. And I have an argument going with Brian Kenny of MLB Network to this day, and I will never relent on this. If you had been in the park, if you had sensed the crowd, if you had watched Harvey in that game, you're not pulling him. I know what the analytics might have said. I know, yes, you could have gone to a fresh bullpen to start the inning and said to Harvey, you did your job. Of course, in hindsight, it looks like that. But the feeling in that ballpark, the emotion, the dominance, all of that factors in. This is a game played by human beings. I have to remind Brian of this every so often, actually every day. But it didn't work out. But that, again, is the lasting memory I had of Harvey. I wish his career had turned out better. I wish certain things hadn't happened for him. And I'm sure he wishes the same. But Matt Harvey in his day was something to behold. Time now for a segment that we occasionally roll out here on Fair Territory, Worried or Wait. And we talked at the top of the show how it's no longer early, how it's time for some serious self-evaluation. So we're going to bring in one of our producers, Claudia Olson, and we're going to take you through this segment and try to decide whether teams and players should be worried or should they wait before being truly concerned. All right, Claudia, kick it off. Let's get going. Cool, guy. Let's get into it. All right, worried or wait? First topic, Cardinals, Nolan Arenado. Worried or wait? Cardinals obviously worried. We talked about them in the first segment. They're a mess. Arenado is an interesting case, and I'm not going to go as far as to say worried, but I will say troubled. And I'm troubled because Nolan Arenado, a guy who was third in the MVP voting in the National League last year, he's still only 32 years old. He's off to a dismal offensive start. Worst start of his career. 608 OPS. That's the 13th lowest in the majors. He's a guy who can be hard on himself. He can press at times. So, yes, I'm a little worried about Nolan Arenado. Do I think he's going to perform better? Of course. But worried, maybe not worried, but troubled. Yeah. I would say the same in the sense where worried, but he started the season with WBC, and it's like the World Series for them. So now he's coming back down from the cloud. and Fair. I think he'll bounce back for sure. All right. Next, worried or wait, Mets and Starling Marte. Worried or wait? Well, I detailed the Mets, totally worried. One and five against the Tigers and Rockies, not good. We need to see better from Scherzer. Verlander, of course, looked good. We need Carrasco to come back before we start taking this team and saying, okay, they're better. And we need them also to hit before we rally around their bandwagon. Now, one of the guys who has to hit is Marte. Here's a guy, 814 OPS last year. He's got the sixth lowest OPS in the major leagues this year. Now, he had that neck issue, so he wasn't physically right necessarily, but he is such a dynamic player that when he is right, it enables the Mets offense to have an entirely different look. And so far this season, he's been a disappointment. He's got the one home run, that's it. Nine stolen bases and 12 attempts, great, but he needs to get on base more, he needs to hit, needs to hit for power. So worried about him as well. I need to see from him at age 34 a little bit more. For sure. And I saw him on the articles as well about the age of all the Mets players too because they're a little bit older, you know. But a little bit? 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, true. You're right. Yeah, you're right. But I think they're going to end up doing just fine in the end anyway. Um, <laughs> all right. So next, worried or wait? Phillies and Kyle Schwarber. Worried or wait? Worried somewhat about the Phillies, even though, of course, last year they had a terrible start. What I'm worried about is their rotation. It's 21st in the league in rotation ERA. They just ended their losing streak on Sunday with a win against the Red Sox. They're going to play better, but coming off a World Series, it's always tough on your pitching. Your starting pitching in particular, Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, these guys pitch deep into October. Of course, they're adjusting to the pitch clock like all teams. A little worried there. Schwarber, not worried, and I'll tell you why. Schwarber has started like this before. Maybe not quite this badly, but he's had some rough moments in the early parts of seasons. Now, he entered Sunday batting 176. He had a 672 OPS. He was 0 for 21 with nine strikeouts, but he went two for three and had a home run in that victory over the Red Sox. But the reason I'm not worried about Schwarber is because wait until the calendar turns to June. That is when he turns into Superman almost every season. He's going to be fine. He's going to hit. He always does. And once June comes around, Kyle Schwarber will be Kyle Schwarber again. All right, Ken. Final worried or wait. Astros and Jose Abreu. Worried or wait? Worried about both. And I'm worried about the Astros because of the state of their rotation. Remember, they lost Justin Verlander to start the year. It still looked like they had a lot of depth. Verlander goes to the Mets as a free agent. They are fourth in the majors in rotation ERA, but this group is sort of crumbling. Garcia, Luis Garcia, Tommy John surgery. Jose Urquidy, shoulder, he's down for a while. McCullers still has not pitched. He's on his way back, should be there shortly, but they're down three starters right now. In their rotation at the moment, Framer Valdez, Christian Javier, two guys who have been great, but also Brandon Belock, J.P. Pete France and the rookie who has done really well, Hunter Brown. That's worrisome. Jose Abreu worrisome on an entirely different level. It's a guy who has still not hit a home run this season. I know his home runs were down last year, but there's none this year. Second lowest OPS in the majors. He does not look like himself. He is not a young man anymore. He's 36. And is this the start of a decline in the first year of a three-year $58.5 million deal? It's quite possible it is. So, yes, I'm worried about Abreu. Ken, as you should be worried about Abreu, because on foul territory, Todd Father picked that he would be hitting the most home runs this season. And as it showed with our guys in betting, if you pick them, they're probably not going to win for absolutely anything. So it's a bad luck on them. Actually, but... Claudia, maybe we should be worried about Todd Father. Yeah. With that kind of pick. I mean, I've made well, my bad guys. picks as well. I cited one earlier about the Red Sox, but Abreu leading the majors and homers, mm, not looking great right now. Yeah, definitely potential worry there. All right, Ken, that was great. Talk to you next time. Thanks, Claudia. Time now for the Dude and Dork of the Week. The Dude of the Week is multi-layered. It's one person, but it's one person for several reasons. Bryce Harper. Now, the main reason, of course, the reason we're talking about Bryce Harper is because he returned from Tommy John surgery in 160 days. That is a record. No one has ever done that before. Granted, he's a position player and coming back only as a DH, but that alone is incredible. Shows what kind of work he put in and how much he desired to get back with his team. Also due to the week for his performance since coming back, he already has been brilliant. No rehab assignment. And here's Harper 
Starts off 0 for 4, first game, understandable. Adjustment period could take a while. Then he goes 7 for 13 with a homer in his next few games. He's performing already at a Bryce Harper type level. But he's the dude of the week for reasons that go beyond his sheer comeback and his sheer performance. This is a guy who, when he signed his $330 million contract with the Phillies, did not ask for an opt-out. And I was, let's just say, skeptical at the time of this whole thing. What I thought was happening is that Harper didn't care about the opt-out, was willing to let the opt-out go because he wanted to be above Giancarlo Stanton for the record total value in a deal. Stanton had the record at the time, $325 million. Harper wanted to get to 330 with his agent, Scott Boris. And if it took sacrificing an opt-out, sacrificing anything else, they were going to do it. And I wrote at the time that that was questionable. And Harper's response and Boris's response was that he did not want to get into a situation again where people were wondering and talking about where he was going to go next. He wanted to settle in one place. Well, he has proven that he chose one place for a reason, Philadelphia, and that he is indeed comfortable with the way the contract played out. Of course, he's been surpassed in average annual value. Even then, it wasn't that great in annual value. And he's playing. He's happy in Philadelphia. He has roots. He was true to his word. And the other reason he's due to the week, and this is one other thing, and some of our people at Fox were talking about this after our broadcast Saturday. A lot of people thought of Bryce Harper when he was a younger player as a punk. He proved that he's not a punk. He's a guy who plays with a ton of passion, but he's not a punk. He, in fact, is kind of what you want your players to be, right? And if you go back to last postseason, in those interviews I did in the dugout during the games, I was with the Phillies for much of the postseason, and of course they were hitting home runs left and right, and I was in the dugout a lot talking to these guys. Well, those interviews happened mainly, in my opinion, because Harper was willing to do it. And once Harper, as the best player, was willing to do it, then other players followed. Now, I'm not giving him due to the week because he was nice to me, because he was willing to be interviewed on Fox. No. What that was was a recognition that there's something bigger going on here, that players need to put themselves out front in the spotlight, that fans want to see them, want to see them in those moments. So for all of that, for the comeback, for performance, for living up to his word with the contract, and for just the general way he has conducted himself as one of the best players in the game, Bryce Harper, Dude of the Week. Now, the Dork of the Week, I'm sorry, it's faceless. I don't have one specific person. I have a group, a general group, and I'm going to call them, for lack of a better term, the Enforcers. The enforcers of the new rules. Now, most of us would agree the rules have been good. The pitch clock in particular, the games are moving. There is more action overall. But at the same time, while I understand that Major League Baseball wants strict enforcement, definitely early on, to get all the players in line to make sure this thing works, there have been several instances where things have looked a bit ridiculous, to say the least. Example one, Harper's elbow guard, which he needs to protect the surgically repaired elbow that he puts on when he gets on base. MLB has told him, no exceptions. You got to get that thing on right away. We're not going to delay. Guys, if it takes Bryce Harper five more seconds, 
the Republic is not going to crumble. Zach Eflin of the Tampa Bay Rays ordered to remove the wedding ring from his glove hand or face ejection. Guys, the glove hand, the wedding ring, it's not going to really change much. It's okay. He can wear the wedding ring. And then finally, something I witnessed Saturday, the standoff between Matt Strom of the Phillies and Cutter Crawford of the Red Sox. Now, you've seen these before. They're kind of entertaining. They're fun. Player from each team stands on the foul line, basically waits for one of them to move so he can say, hey, I outlasted you. This is right after the anthem plays, before the game starts. So, unbeknownst to me, Strom and Cutter Crawford engaged in this kind of competition on Saturday. I was right there seeing it. In fact, I went live on the air standing right next to Strom as this was still going on. So instead of the umpires just telling these guys, guys, get off the field now, it's time for the game to start, they were ejected. Both of them were ejected. And Crawford, because he's on the injured list, faces a larger fine than Strom will receive because when you're on the IL, you get nailed, as Alex Cora said, the Red Sox manager. I asked for an explanation. The explanation I got was the players were warned. They were told they'd be ejected if they didn't get off the field, and that was that. It's a standoff. It's supposed to be fun. We can go on with these standoffs and not have ejections. The enforcers are the dorks of the week. Guys, we've got to use common sense once in a while. Mark Weiner, one of our producers, suggested that baseball needs a department of common sense, and I would suggest that he is absolutely correct. The enforcers, you need to let up. As I mentioned earlier, I'm headed to California this week. Very excited for Dodgers-Padres round two. That will take place over the weekend at Dodgers Stadium. We've got the second of the three games on Fox. Now, you may have seen yesterday that we reported the Dodgers and Padres could, repeat could, be the matchup also next season for the first ever series that will take place in Korea. Now, not all of the details have been finalized for this yet. It's still kind of unofficial, but those teams are on the short list. Those teams make a lot of sense to play in Korea, and it would be really cool to see baseball expand its international reach by going to that country. All right, now it's time for the fan questions. We do this every week. Let's get started. First question comes from Zach Anderson. And Zach, I always appreciate a guy who uses his real name and his handle. Zach asks, a very fair question, how long can the Pirates keep it up? I've got some bad news. They already are not keeping it up. They've lost seven straight, one to the Nationals, three to the Rays, three to the Jays. Now that's tough competition. The Rays and Jays are two of the better teams in baseball. It's understandable that the Pirates' early season run would come to something of a halt against those clubs. The starting pitching is teetering now a little bit where it had been so strong earlier. And here's the key thing. During that losing streak, that seven-game losing streak, they scored only nine runs. Nine runs in seven games. Again, you're playing the Rays and the Jays. It can happen. But it's going to be really interesting now to see how the Pirates come out of this. How do they respond to their first adversity of the season? All right, we go to the next question. This comes from... Not a person who uses his name in his handle. Sports for dorks. He asks, what are your thoughts on adding a salary floor to prevent what teams like the A's are doing now? 
Sports for Dorks, this is a good question. A lot of fans ask this constantly. Hey, make those teams spend money. Especially in the case of the A's and others, they get revenue sharing money. Let's go. Make them spend it. All right. The salary floor as a concept is one I love, right? It makes a lot of sense. The problem is baseball, Major League Baseball, to agree to a salary floor wants a salary cap. What MLB is saying is if you're going to put a limit at the bottom or a set number at the bottom, we want a set number at the top. If you follow this game over the years, you know. The union is never going for a salary cap. And there were some proposals floated around in the last collective bargaining negotiations with a floor, and it was introduced by MLB with a very restrictive luxury tax type system. The, the numbers would have been lowered at the top. It was a pain in the rear from the union's perspective. It was never, ever going to fly. Now, from a practical standpoint, a floor also presents certain problems. And one of these was raised to me during the CBA negotiations. If you're telling, let's say, the A's, they've got to spend $100 million, and really they're operating in around 60 or 70, how do you get to 100? Most likely, the A's aren't signing Shohei Otani this winter. What they might be doing is simply swallowing bad contracts from other teams to get to their number while they continue their rebuilding dance. That's not exactly what you want here. A floor would help. It would force these teams to think differently. I agree. It would make them more competitive. But a floor is not foolproof. And as long as it is linked to a cap, the union is never going to go for it. You're going to hear talk about a cap over the next several years. You're already hearing little rumblings and little feelers about it, as we always do in this sport. I will say it again. Not happening. All right. On to the next question. Final question from Andrew Bostwick. And Andrew asks, are the Rays the World Series favorite right now? Very fair question, considering the way the Rays have started the season. And I'm going to show you a graphic now to demonstrate why the answer to your question is yes, at least based on past history. So go back to 1901. And here are the most wins through 35 games since 1901. We're talking more than a century. 1984 Tigers, 30 and 5. Ultimately went on to 35-5, and five, one of the great teams of our generation, won the World Series. 1902 Pirates didn't win the World Series, even though they were 30-5, and five, because there was no World Series. 1939 Yankees, one of the great teams in history, 28-7, won the World Series. 28 Yankees, 28-7, won the World Series. 1912 New York Giants, okay, they lost the World Series, but they got there. Which brings us, at 28-7, to the 2023 Rays. Now, it's a much different era. Back in the day when most of those teams were going to the World Series, except for the 84 Tigers, one team from each league. That was it. That was who went to the World Series. Now, expanded playoffs. You've got to get through multiple rounds. It's much more difficult to get there and, of course, to win it and be the survivor at the end of this. That said, how can you go against the Rays right now? They've done everything a team can ever show to this point in the season. Offensively, run prevention, pitching defense, they are a complete team. They have shown the ability to come back like they did against the Yankees yesterday. They have just done so many things right. Now they're gonna hit their little valleys, all teams do. And maybe they hit a big valley, I don't know. It could be injuries. But they're also a team with 
the ability to make a move at the deadline because their farm system is so strong, they will take on payroll if they're in it. And I just see them right now as the dominant team in the game, as we all see them. The Braves are a force. I can see them coming on. I can see maybe the Padres, if they ever figure things out, getting there as well. But the Rays right now, yes, I would answer, Andrew, they are the favorites to win the World Series. Thanks to everyone for their questions. We always get great questions from you guys. Really appreciate it. Thanks to everyone for watching and for listening. You can subscribe to us on YouTube. You can subscribe to us wherever you get your favorite podcasts. We are Fair Territory. Have a great week, everyone. We'll talk to you next week. Foul Territory fans, listen up. Our friends at BetMGM are running an MLB Bet $10 Get $100 Instantly promo with the bonus code SPICYMLB. Here's how it works. Sign up and deposit at least $10 into your newly created account. Download the BetMGM Sportsbook app on iOS or Android. Place a pre-game money line wager of at least $10 on any MLB team to win at standard odds price, and you will receive $100 in bonus bets instantly. If you sign up in Massachusetts or Ohio, you receive $200 in bonus bets. Use the bonus code SPICYMLB.